podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. Good boys and girls, welcome to the show on Thursday, the 15th of December. The World Cup semi-finals are over. We have two games left in the 2022 FIFA World Cup. A third and fourth place playoff on Saturday between Croatia and Morocco, who heroically went out to France last night. 2-0, not really reflective of the game. I thought Morocco were quite good. I thought France were quite lucky. But Morocco's dream, their adventure is over. They will still have that third and fourth place playoff. It'll be interesting to see what team they put out or what team they can put out. Because obviously they lost Mazraoui and Saiz to injury during the game. And Agard, who was initially picked in the team, 
had to drop out as well. So unlikely that any of the three of those feature. But I still think they'll put out a strong enough team. I think Croatia might rotate a bit. It should be an interesting game to see who brings home the bronze medal. In the final on Sunday, it is Argentina versus France. It is Messi versus Mbappe. It is the final a lot of people wanted. I think it was either that or France-Brazil. They were the kind of two most common picks that people had. I think Argentina have done brilliantly to get to this final. I think they've improved with each passing game. Whereas I think France look like things are starting to become a bit of a slog for them. Now, they looked improved defensively yesterday with Ibrahim Kanate coming in for Deadouba Meccano. That needs to stay the same for the final. Nobody can have watched Upa Meccano against England and Kanate against Morocco and come to the decision that Upa Meccano should be the one to start. Kanate is the better defender individually and he suits their system more. He raises the level of Varane. He gives Teo Hernandez more help as well. Kanate has to start. Yusuf Fafana came in for Rabio and didn't impress. Rabio needs to come back in for that final. Aside from that, I think France will stick largely with the same team, and we'll talk about that more tomorrow. For the Argentines, I, I don't think I'd make a single change from what to what team you put out against Croatia. I think I'd go with the same team. But again, we'll talk more about that tomorrow. Those are, I think, two good games. I'm really excited for that final. I think it's the final... Like I said, that a lot of people wanted because people wanted Messi to get to the World Cup final. And I think from the other side of the draw, people expected France to get to the final. I think Portugal were the only team in their half of the draw, as everybody expected the draw to break down. Portugal were the team that people thought might give them real trouble. As it turned out, Portugal gave themselves a bunch of trouble. England weren't seen as a huge threat to them. I don't think Spain were either. So, look, it is it is primed to be a good game. It really is. The BBC have put up a combined 11 maker, so we might as well just do that for the crack. I think Emmy Martinez is the better goalkeeper. Normally, I would say that Jules Koundé is the better of the right-backs. But Molina has had a significantly better tournament, so I'm going to go with him. I'm going to go with Christian Romero as the right-side centre-back over Varane. I just think he's a better defender, and I think he's had a better tournament. I'm going to go with Ibu Kanate because I think he's been flawless when he's played. I don't think he's put a foot wrong. He's got the highest um, winning percentage for duels throughout the tournament. I I think you could make an argument that if he'd played all the games... He's probably been the best defender at the tournament. He's played three games from the start and one as a sub, and he hasn't put a foot wrong. Left back, Teo Hernandez had an absolute stinker against England, but he's been pretty good for the rest of the tournament. The Argentine left backs haven't inspired much confidence, so I'm going to go with Teo. In midfield, I think you've got to begin your midfield with... Enzo Fernandez, I think he's been absolutely outstanding since coming into the team. I think Chuameni gets in as well. I think he's been really, really good. 
And then I think it comes down to three players for that third spot. Adrian Rabiot has had a great World Cup. Now, he missed last night's game, but he's expected back for the final. He's had a great World Cup. Alexis McAllister has been brilliant since coming into the Argentine team. He's made such a difference. But I think it has to be Antoine Griezmann. And I think there's a real case that Griezmann might be the player of the tournament. And in attack, there's two obvious ones. Mbappe is an obvious one. Messi is an obvious one. The question is, do you go Giroud? Do you go Alvarez? Or do you bring in a fourth midfielder? And I think I'd be inclined to bring in a fourth midfielder, if I'm being honest. I don't think any of the strikers... Alvarez has had a good tournament, but he hasn't... He hasn't make, made a definitive case that he has to be in. Same goes for Giroud. Good tournament, but not a definitive case. So I think I have to go back to the midfield and go with one of Alexis or Rabio. And I think I'm going to go with Alexis McAllister. But I think it is a coin toss. So I've got Martinez, Molina, Romero, Canate, Hernandez, Enzo Fernandez, and Chiumeni as a, as a midfield two. Griezmann and McAllister as sort of an advanced two. And then Messi and Mbappe up front. God bless anybody trying to take on that team. These are two good teams. These these are two good teams. Right, let's move on. Um, yesterday we talked about Southampton. That makes today Tottenham's turn. So we're going to go with Tottenham today. Then we'll go break. Then we've got some listeners' questions, and then we'll finish with the gossip, and that will be us for the day. Uh, Tottenham Hotspur, they are currently fourth in the Premier League. They've had, I think, a mixed season, though. They started well. They beat Southampton. They got outplayed by Chelsea, but got a draw at the bridge. They got outplayed by Wolves, but managed to beat them. Then they went to Nottingham, and they beat Forest 2-0. Then they got a 1-1 draw with West Ham, again in a game that they were largely outplayed in. They beat Fulham at home 2-1. They hammered Leicester 6-2. And then they played Arsenal. And this is where their season sort of changed. So it was a really disappointing performance. Partey put Arsenal one up. Kane equalised in the penalty spot. And Spurs seemed like they almost settled for the draw. Gabriel Jesus put Arsenal 2-1 up just after half time, And Spurs never really seemed like they were going to fight back at Arsenal. Emerson... Gets sent off on 62 minutes, and that's kind of game over. Xhaka scores five minutes later, and it's definitely game over. I was really disappointed with Spurs on the day. They did bounce back, though, with a good win over Brighton at Brighton. Harry Kane goal enough there. Then they beat a very boring Everton team, 2-0. Kane and Heusberg with the goals. Then they went to Old Trafford and they lost 2-0. Now, the result in the performances of both sides has been lost in that one because Cristiano walked off and headed for the touchline before the game, or headed for the the, the dressing room, rather, before the game was over, having refused to come on as a substitute. 
Then they lost 2-1 at home to Newcastle. And they were really poor on the day. They were awful. And I do mean awful against Bournemouth for 55 minutes. And they were 2-0 down. But Sessegnon, Davies and a late Bentoncourt goal gave them the win. Then they played Liverpool at home. And for the first half, they were a shambles. And they were 2-0 down at half time. They had a good second half. And Kane got them one back. But it wasn't an impressive performance at all. And then we saw them play Leeds in the last game. Again, they go one behind. They get back into it. Then it's 2-1 behind. They get back into it. Then they're 3-2 behind. And then two late Bentoncourt goals gives them the win. A good win, like the Bournemouth one, to come back from behind and score late to win a game. But again, you're putting yourself in these positions against teams you should be beating quite comfortably. In the Champions League, they did top their group. They beat Marseille 2-0. They lost away to Sporting. They drew away to Eintracht. They beat Frankfurt 3-2 at home. They drew at home with Sporting. And then they beat Marseille in the final game to ensure that they topped the group. That's impressive. And they play AC Milan in the next round. Those That's a winnable tie in the round of 16. So Spurs should find themselves in the quarterfinals this year. Now, Antonio Conte doesn't have a particularly good Champions League record, but they've topped their group and it's a winnable game. So they should find themselves in the quarterfinal. They went out of the EFL Cup. Forrest beat them 2-0. Forrest played a very strong team. Lodi and Lingard scored. Spurs didn't offer a whole lot. If we look at their summer business... They released a bunch of players. They have Kulisevsky in on loan from January till the end of this season, at which point it becomes an obligation to buy. They brought in Clement Langley on loan, who I'm not a fan of, as everybody's aware. They loaned out Joe Roden, Giovanni Lacelso, Tangoy Endembele, Sergio Regulon, expensive players. Players they've spent a lot of money on in recent years, especially Lacelso and Dumbelli and Regulon. And these are good players. And Endembele is having a hell of a season for Napoli. Now, he's not starting every game for Napoli. He's a squad player, but he's playing really well. Joe Roden's playing really well for Wren. Lacelso was having a decent year for Villarreal, but the injuries have caught up with him again. Regulon has been pretty poor at Atleti. Harry Winks has also gone on loan to Sampdoria, but he's been injured, so he hasn't really played. They sold Bergvine, no real loss there. They brought in Ivan Perisic on a Bosman. He's been pretty good. They brought in Fraser Forster on a Bosman. He's been there. They spent £25 million on Yves Basuma, and he hasn't yet earned Conte's trust, which is a bit of a concern. They brought in Richarlison. He's been a bit of a mixed bag. He's fine if he plays with Kane or Son plus Kulisewski. But when it's Kane, Son and Richarlison, it hasn't worked. They brought in Jed Spence. Again, hasn't got the manager's trust as yet. It remains to be seen if he will get it at any point. They bought Destiny Udoji from Udinese and 
ridiculously promising young left wing back option. He's gone out on loan to Udinese where he was last season and he will stay there for the season and then they'll hopefully bring him in next year. Whether or not Conte is going to put his faith in a young wing back, I don't know. He hasn't in Spence yet. But in Spence and Adoji, you have two potentially very, very good wing backs for the long term. And then they made the Christian Romero deal a permanent deal. They'd had him on loan with an obligation. They made it permanent. He has been excellent when fit, but fitness is the issue for him. When we look at this Tottenham team, there are areas of great strength. A front three of Kulisevsky, Kane and Son is ridiculous. And when those three play, Spurs are ridiculously good. But when Kulisevsky's missing, there's nobody who connects midfield to attack. And that's where they fall short. Richarlison is a good backup to Kane and Son. But he's not a starter alongside them. In central midfield, they've got some decent options. Like, just sorry, back to the attack for one second. Brian Hill could be the player who is the alternative to Kulosevsky. He's got elite level dribbling. He's got a good change of pace. He's happy to carry the ball over distance. He's a good passer, probably a better passer than Kulosevsky. So if Conte would maybe give him a little bit more run, they might be able to negate the absence of Kulisevsky when he's out of the team. Hill remembers the player that they spent a a sizable amount of money on to bring him in from Sevilla. He'd had a great loan at Ibar. Spurs brought him in. I think it was 22 million plus Lamella. So that's a significant chunk of change you've sent out the door. You've got to be making something of this talented player. And he got what, a six-month loan last season at Valencia, having been at Tottenham for the first half of the season? He's someone they need to do more with. And if their backup front three is, say, Hill on the right, Richarlison on the left, and if they could maybe, if Dane Scarlett takes a step forward in his development while out on loan this season, maybe he's the one who completes that back up front three. Lucas Moura, at this point, doesn't want to be there. He wants to go back to Brazil. So that's probably something they should facilitate in January. And maybe maybe it's worth them taking a look at whether or not they can get in a striker on loan for the rest of this season. But Scarlett is the one they have real hopes for. He's on loan at Portsmouth this year. He's got five goals in 22 games, which for an 18-year-old is is not bad at all in League One because it's a very physical league. So Spurs and attack, you wouldn't say they need to do too much. Just keep the players you have, try and keep them fit, and use the players you have a little bit more. In midfield, I think is really good. I think Benton Kerr is really good. I think Emil Hoy- Pierre-Emil Hoysberg is really good. I think Oli Skip is promising. I think Pape Matar Sar could be an absolute a world beater in midfield. I think he's really special. They also own Harvey White, who's a talented player. And they obviously own Harry Winks, who's out on loan. Winks is one you'd look to move on. If he comes back off the loan, you're going to look to sell him. Fulham or somebody would definitely snap him up. 
I think given Conte likes to play a midfield too, I think they're fine. I don't think they need to touch that area. I think they're good to go. I think you've got five midfielders, six if you're going to trust Harry White a bit more, who can play those two roles and give you varying looks in terms of the partnerships you can build. And they're all good ages. Heusberg is 27. He's the oldest. Papi Matarsar is 20. He's the youngest. Left wing back, again, I think they're really strong here. You've got Ivan Perisic. You've got Ryan Sessegnon. And you know that you've got Edoji on the way in. So I, I don't think you touch that role. Right back, there's three options. I just don't know that Conte's keen on any of them. Spence, I, I think he's really good. Now, he needs a little bit more development, obviously, but I do think he's really good. Emerson Royale is a strange player. He's he's the best of the three defensively. And he shows flashes going forward of a of a real player, and then they just disappear. And he looks like football is new to him. And then they've got Matt Doherty, who's a bit older and a bit more impactful when he plays because he's a bit smarter, makes clever runs. It's a position they're rumoured to be looking to upgrade in, but personally, I wouldn't. I, I, You've got Royale is 23 and Spence is 22. I'd look to make the most of them. I think they're both very talented players in different ways. It's not an area I'd go near. I'd leave it alone. Centre-back is where I have issues with this, this group. Romero is outstanding. He's a top three defender in the league. When fit. But when fit is the issue. Now, I think Jaffa Tangang is a good defender. And I think if you develop him to be the Romero backup, I think that can solve the problem there and you can balance it out pretty well. The other two positions, though, I'm not keen. I think Ben Davies is fine as a squad player for a top 14, but he's not a starter. So I think you've got to find your starting left side centre-back. Now, the two they've been strongly linked with are Bastoni and Guardiol. Both of them might be out of their price range. Now, Piero Hincapié of Bayer Leverkusen would be a really nice fit here. And he might be someone they could look at. I would go all out to try and get Guardiol or Bastoni, but if you can't get them, Hincapié is a really good fit. A really, really good fit. And then I think Davies is fine as a backup. I would send Clement Langley back to Barcelona at the end of his loan spell. I would look to sell Davinson Sanchez at the first possible opportunity. I would probably look to do the same with Eric Dyer because I, I, I know he's been better, but he just always, always, always has a mistake in his game. I think Joe Roden fits well in that middle position. But again, like with Ben Davies, I think he's a squad player, top four level. I think Tanganga, Roden and Davies as a backup back three is pretty good. But the two areas they need to address are central central defender and left side central defender in their back three. They don't have anybody else out on loan. I think I don't think they can make a real impact. 
And then you have to look at the goalkeeper because Hugo Lloris is almost 36. Fraser Forster is 34 and he's not good enough to be starting for this team. And Lloris is definitely on the decline. Now, Brandon Alston's a highly regarded young goalkeeper, but I don't think he's going to make the level at Tottenham. They have Alfie Whiteman as well, who's another highly regarded young goalkeeper. Um, but at 24 and having never had a look in, I'm not really sure it's going to work out. He might well end up going permanently to the Swedish club he's currently on loan with. So they they do need to look at a goalkeeper. That's one for the summer. Goalkeeper is the one to look at for the summer. I think in January, they've got to go and get a centre-back. I really do. I, I think they've got to go and get a centre-back. Um, Be it the left-side role or that central, central starting role, they need to bring in a centre-back and upgrade that defence in the January transfer window. Because... For an Antonio Conte team to have conceded 21 goals in 15 Premier League games is completely unacceptable. This guy won a league title with Victor Moses and Marcus Alonso as wingbacks, neither of whom are very good, and a back three of Aspilicueta, who's a fullback, David Luiz, who's a lunatic, and Tim Cahill, no, Gary Cahill, who was a decent defender at his best, but was quite slow and immobile and to play him as a left-sided centre-back in a back three with big spaces to develop or to defend, that's that's a big ask and he managed it. Now they did sit Kante and what's that? Oh, Nemanja Matic. <laughs> His name escaped me for a second. Nemanja Matic in front of them. They did have that platform but Spurs have a strong midfield, a really strong midfield. A Benton-Core-Basuma partnership is really strong. A Heusberg-Basuma partnership is really strong. A Heusberg-Benton-Core midfield is a little bit slow-footed. And I think if Basuma can get back to his very best, that dynamic, all-over-the-pitch type of player, I think he can get himself into the team. I think centre-back and goalkeeper are the areas they've got to address over the next two windows. And I if a really, really good right wing back pops off pops up, if you can get Pedro Poro from Sporting or Jeremy Frimpong from Bayer Leverkusen, then fine, go and do it. But other than the two centre back positions, a goalkeeper, I don't know that I'd look to do anything. You still want to look look for one more in attack. That's probably what you want to do. If you, if you think Dane Scarlett isn't quite there yet and won't get there, like, I, I don't know. I don't don't keep tabs on the Spurs academy players. I mean, could they look to bring Marcus Edwards back to the club? Could that be an option for them? Because he can play as a false nine or either wide position. And if you've got Kane, Son, Kulisevsky, Edwards, Richarlison and Brian Hill... As your six forward players, that's immensely strong. Immensely strong. And I'm fairly certain that they could get that deal done tomorrow if they wanted to. So if they could do that, then then do it. 
But centre-back has to be the focus for January. It has to be the focus for January. You've got to improve that back three. You cannot be conceding 21 goals in 15 games when you're managed by Antonio Conte. It's just not acceptable. I think they're a good team. I think they will get top four. Um, I think of the curtain top four, Newcastle are the one that will drop out. But it's going to be a challenge for Tottenham. And they're the one, I think, them and Arsenal are, are the ones at risk of you know Newcastle continuing to grow and United eventually getting themselves back on track. Chelsea getting back on track. It is those two North London clubs that stand out to me because they don't have the same kind of financial pull. Arsenal spent a lot of money over the last couple of years, but they've done it to get back in the Champions League because they were starting to lose a fortune. And the Cronkies just want them in the Champions League. If they get Champions League, I think the spending will will slow down significantly. Like they're not, when people say, oh, they're going to back Arteta with 50 million to continue the title charge. No, they're not. They're going to give him some money to spend to ensure he gets top four this year. Because that's all they care about. Same thing all the Glazers care about now is top four. Because the money. Stan Kroenke doesn't care about Arsenal. His entire focus is on the LA Rams. He doesn't even care about the Denver Nuggets who've got maybe a top, well, definitely a top three player in the NBA in Nikola Jokic, who's a two-time reigning MVP. And Kroenke just doesn't care. Like, he's he's messed up their TV deal to the point that nobody can watch them in the local area. This is the best Nuggets team maybe ever, and no one can watch them locally unless they go to the games because Kroenke's an idiot. And by the way, Kroenke owns the TV network, so it's just a mess. He cares about the LA Rams and his fancy stadium in LA, which, by the way, is is absolutely incredible. But he doesn't, doesn't care about Arsenal. Arsenal is just an asset to him. But he doesn't want an asset that loses money. Um, and Spurs, I mean, they just they don't have the same type of financial strength as a lot of the rest. Joe Lewis is a very wealthy man, but he owns the company. He owns the club through his company, and. He's not willing to spend the type of money that he needs to spend. At times he has spent big, but I don't know. I You've got Conte. I think you've got to go all out. I just don't feel like they will. I think Lewis and Daniel Levy are a little bit too safe and conservative in what they do. We'll take a break. When we come back, we will go through some listeners' questions and wrap up with the gossip. I'll see you in a sec. Right, welcome back. One good bit of news before we hit listeners' questions. 
Pablo Mari has returned to training with Monza just two months after being stabbed in an Italian supermarket. Uh, great to see him back. He came far closer to death than a man of his age ever should. So uh, good to see him back in training. Right, listeners' questions. Um, Isaac Gilding, question for the pod. Been wondering for a week what the heck you were doing at Adam McKay's house. Um, I will message you privately on Discord and tell you, but I, I can't actually make it public. Um, not that it's anything, it's nothing exciting or anything. I just, I just can't. Um, where would each of the remaining teams in the Prem or in the World Cup finish in the Prem? Now he asked this question. He actually asked this question last week. So at that point in the World Cup, I think we were at the quarterfinal stage. When he asked it, so let's have a quick look. It was the the eighth he asked it. Yeah, so it was the quarterfinals. Um, Croatia, failure to score goals would make them quite Brighton-ish in the Premier League. So I would say they would finish somewhere between 8th and 12th. They do have a couple of geniuses like Modric and Kovacic who might lift them into a Europa League spot, but I don't think they'd go any higher than sixth. Brazil have all the talent. All the talent. But Neymar is a part-time player. They're still beholden to Thiago Silva, who's a weak link in defence. Wouldn't be in love with their fullback situation. Great goalkeeper, very good midfield options, outstanding forward options, but lacking a true number nine. But we've seen Gabriel Jesus this season, so if he could get in the team, could be pretty good. I would say top four. Uh, Netherlands, questionable goalkeeping situation, strong group of defenders, iffy wingbacks, but better options available to them. Strong midfield group, lacking maybe... Maybe something who someone who can bring goals, but they do have the likes of Donny Van Der Beek. It wasn't in the squad, but he'd be available to them if you look at the say as an academy option. Um, I think they're top a top eight team. Argentina, good goalkeeper, very good right back, great centre back, mediocre centre back, average left backs. Very strong in midfield, if a little one-paced. Messi. The question is, do they have a reliable nine? Now, Alvarez obviously has worked really well with Messi. Laturo did not. But if if Alvarez can run defenders' legs off them for 65 and Laturo can come on and have an impact and they have the likes of Dybala as an impact player, I think that's a top four team without question. Morocco, I think, would be a mid-table team. I think they'd huff and puff a lot. I think they'd work really hard. They'd be horrible to play against. Nobody would enjoy their outing against Morocco, but I think they'd be a mid-table team. Portugal, with Cristiano, is a mid-table team. Without Cristiano, has the possibility and the talent to win the Premier League. England, with a real manager, I think have the potential and the talent to win the Premier League. I think you give Klopp or Pep or Conte that England squad 
and allow them to make the changes that they see fit, I think they could win the Premier League. I don't think they would be as likely as Portugal, but I think they'd be top four. And I think France, the same thing, would take a different manager, but they've got talent everywhere. Like, I've spoken about Lloris today. I, I think he's passed his best, but he's having a good tournament. But you do have Mike Mannion. You have, down the road, you could potentially have Alban Lafont as your number one. So that position, I think, can improve. You've also got Ariola, who's a good goalkeeper. Um, Mandanda is not, it should be pointed out, not anymore. Right back, Kunde is is has not had a great tournament, but he is very good there. It's the one spot they haven't produced endless amounts of talent. They've got the best centre-back options anyone has in the world in terms of both individuals and depth. Left-back is pretty strong, especially when you, you can factor Lucas Hernandez is an, in as an option, as well as Theo. Uh, midfield is uh, ridiculously strong, absolutely ridiculously strong, and the attack, I mean, you're going to have Mbappe, you're going to have Dembele, you're going to have Griezmann, you're going to have Nkunku, you're going to have Benzema, you're going to have Giroud, you're going to have Kulomuanu, you're going to have as many attackers as you want, like Matthias Till, players like that that are coming through, just sensational. France, I think, would win the Premier League. You give you give Pep or Klopp or Conte or Simeone that French group because they can adapt to any style, and I think they run away with the Premier League. I think that French group potentially could be the best team we ever see under the right manager because there's just insane amounts of talent everywhere. Like they could put out a B team that would probably be a top three international team in the world. Players that don't start for them. They could put out a C team, players that don't make the current squad, that's probably a top eight Premier League team a top 10 team in international football. So, yeah, I, I think I think they're the, the pick of the bunch in terms of talent. I don't know if they'll win the final, though. It's just there's something about that Argentine team. We can talk about it tomorrow. Uh, moving on. Hefty Horse. I was thinking it could be interesting to do a pod exploring what years Maradona would have won the Ballon d'Or had he been eligible could do it with Pele too, as it can tie into their high level of performance at World Cups. So the Ballon d'Or used to be only for European players, um, and there was a there was a separate award for international players, the FIFA Player of the Year or something. Uh, Maradona. Let's see. Do you know, I honestly think, I honestly believe he wins it every year from 84, 85 to 89, 90. Genuinely, I think he wins it every year. 84, 85, he joins Napoli. And immediately, now, bear in mind, at Barcelona, there's a bit of a myth that he flopped at Barcelona. You, you'll hear people tell you that, that, oh, he went to Barcelona, it didn't work. In his first season there, he got 23 goals in 35 games. And in his second season, he got 15 goals in 23 games. 
while getting kicked to an extent that nobody will ever witness again. Even in Argentina and Brazil now, where it's the wild, wild west, they're trying to cut it out and they're sending players off for tackles that, you know, even in England wouldn't be a red card. So the, what, what he was subjected to was just horrendous. You look at his time in Argentinos Juniors. In his first full season, 19 goals in 49 games. In his second season, 26 and 35. Then 26 and 26. Then 43 and 45. Now, there's no argument to be made that he shouldn't have been in that 1978 Argentine World Cup squad. They left him out because they felt he was too young. He should have been in the squad. They went on and won it anyway, but he should have been in the squad. He joins Boca Juniors. He spends one year there, 28 goals in 40 games. Now, goals don't tell the story with Diego because he probably had as many assists. And he was creating chances for everybody in every game, left, right, and center. His primary instinct was to create for others. But he goes to Barca, 23 and 35, 15 and 23 in the second season. One of the reasons people say it didn't work out for him is because he only played 36 league matches across the two years, but because he was getting booted left, right, and center. He goes to Napoli anyway in 1984. Remember, this is the second time now he's broken the um, the world transfer record. Barcelona broke it to bring him there for £5 million, and Napoli broke it again to bring him for almost £7 million. So his price went up in two years. So nobody can say he was a flop. At Napoli, it's just, it's an otherworldly event when you go back and watch those games. 17 and 36. Then in the second year, he gets 13 and 31. But at the end of that year, he single-handedly carries Argentina to the World Cup. The single greatest World Cup performance ever is Maradona in 86. From start to finish, he was sensational. Comes off that season, 17 goals in 41 games, and leads Napoli to Serie A title. And Napoli, who, remember, had never won Serie A. And Napoli that were one of those kind of big underachieving clubs who'd spent a lot of their past in the lower leagues. They'd won a couple of Coppa Italias. Not only does he win Serie A that year, he wins the Coppa Italia as well. He leads them to the double. In 87-88, 21 goals in 39 games. He's out of his mind at this point. He's so good. In 89-90, sorry, that that was 87-88. Oh, sorry, 88-89, 19 in 50. And he leads Napoli to their first and to date only European success wins the UEFA Cup. 
This is at a time where the UEFA Cup is arguably harder to win than the European Cup. In 89-90, he wins Serie A for the second time with Napoli while getting 18 goals in 36 games. Remember, the two titles he won, especially that second one, that he won with Napoli, they're going up against, I believe, the greatest club team ever formed, Arrigo Sacchi's AC Milan. And he, with an enormous talent disadvantage, is overcoming the odds. And he wins the title. And at the end of that season, he drags a very average Argentina team all the way to the final by sheer force of will. His body is starting to break down. The years of abuse on the pitch, the years of abuse he's given it himself off the pitch are starting to catch up with it. And after losing that World Cup final, that's kind of where it ends for him. His last season at Napoli isn't particularly good. 10 goals in 26 games, but he doesn't look the same player. He looks tired all the time. He leaves Napoli. It's very clear that his life off the pitch has kind of run away from him. And you don't really know what happened in the next little while, but he faces, he, he, he gets a 15 month drug ban for cocaine use. Finally tests positive after clearly having been absolutely off his bicky for six years. Uh, he tests positive, leaves Napoli and signs for Sevilla in what was a surprise because all the top clubs were willing to take him. Cocaine ban or no cocaine ban, everybody wanted him. Goes to Sevilla, plays one season there, six goals in 30 games. He's a little bit overweight. He doesn't look like he's fully committed to anything. He heads back to South America. He joins Newell's old boys. He barely plays for the first year. He goes to the World Cup. He looks unbelievably good at this point. He's 34 years of age. 33 pushing 34 at this World Cup, the one in America. And he scores that famous goal. And then he tests positive. And uh, that's it. That's it. That's his international career over. Um, a tragic end to one of the great careers internationally. And then he sticks around at Boca Juniors for a couple of years, but he doesn't really play and it's, his life is a, a, an absolute mess. And he's well into his 30s at this point. And remember as well, because he started playing so early, like he was 15 when he was making first team appearances for uh, for Argentinos Juniors. He'd been he'd been around a long time by the time he got to to Newell's old boys before the World Cup. I genuinely believe that every single year from 84, 85 to 89, 90, he was 
he would have deserved the Ballon d'Or. Now, we can compare what he was doing in Argentina in the 70s to European football, because I don't know what the level was like, but what, what he was putting up was outrageous. The numbers he put up was, were outrageous. Uh, Maradona scored more goals than people remembered. He got 310 club goals in 589 appearances, which is significant. Uh, at international level, 34 goals in 31 games. So better than one in three at international level, better than one in two at club level. And considering he was a midfielder and not a forward player, um, he did often play off a forward as like the second striker, but he was primarily a, an attacking midfielder. <sighs> For me, I've said this before, I think he's the best player we've ever seen. And I don't know that anyone has hit the level he did. I would say from 85, though the first year at Napoli was great, I would say from 85 on to 90. That's the best we've ever seen. Now, Messi's the greatest player of all time because of the longevity. The fact that he was the world's best player for Fully 12 years. It was Messi and everybody else. But I don't know that even at Messi's very apex, he hit Diego's apex. As good as he's been in this World Cup, it's not a patch on what Maradona was in 86. I don't think it's quite as good as what Maradona was in 90. I think Diego would have six Ballon d'Ors. Honestly, six. As for Pele, I'll do that another day. Um, But I don't know. The issue with Pele is is where he played his club football. Now, the Brazilian league was very strong and is very strong now and has, you know, generally been a strong level. It's sort of, I would say, fluctuated below. It's below the best of European football, but it's right now. It's probably on a level with France and Portugal, maybe a little bit lower sometimes and a little bit higher other times, but it's around that level. But it's after the Premier League, La Liga, Serie A and the Bundesliga. Um, Barnsley, surely you can get your Twitter account unsuspended in this brave new home world. I have a new Twitter account, at Mr2Footed. Do, uh, do give me a follow there. Um, as far as the old ones go, I hope so. It'd be nice to have them back, especially my original account. I'd like to have that one back. If as, assuming everything is restored, including old direct messages, because as I mentioned, yes, I was it yesterday when I talked about Grant Wall the day before, maybe. Um, the day before was Tuesday, wasn't it? Um, there's there's direct messages in there from from him and from a few other people, uh, including my good friend John Paul Cullen, who passed away a number of years ago. There's direct messages there from, from him as well that I, I'd like to have access to again. So I'm hopeful. Um, AMK2889, I want an 11 from you, but every player selected has to either hold the all-time record for appearances or goals scored at either club or country level. I saw this as you put it in, and I have my team. Set Meyer in goal, all-time record appearance holder for Bayern Munich. Outstanding goalkeeper. Outstanding goalkeeper. Now, I did consider 
Actually, I do you know I I may have to change this. I I do have to change it because Gigi Buffon was the goalkeeper I wanted, but obviously didn't have the most appearances. For Juve, had the most Serie A appearances, but Del Piero beat him on overall appearances. But Gigi Buffon, most appearances for the Italian national team, 176 caps. Um, Javier Zanetti at right back, most appearances for Inter Milan. Paolo Maldini at left back, most appearances for AC Milan. I've got David O'Leary, one of the most underrated defenders of all time. David O'Leary is one of my centre-backs. Arsenal's record appearance holder, a player who had a quite impressive late resurgence to his career and scored the most important penalty in the history of Irish football in the penalty shootout in 1990 against Romania when he stepped up to slot home. Finished his career at Leeds, was was only a squad player there, uh, was a decent manager, did, did really well at, at Leeds. Now, obviously, it's tarnished by what happened after he left with, with how Leeds' finances went. And I don't know how much he knew about what was going on, but um, he was a tremendous defender. And to play 722 games for Arsenal, is incredible. He was a regular in the team from the 70s through the 80s. When Bold and Adams became first choice, that was kind of the end of his time as a starter. But he still hung around and played an important squad role uh, all the way up until the first year of the Premier League, 92-93. But you're talking about a guy who was from 1975 until... 1992 never played less than 27 games in a season for Arsenal 68 caps for Ireland won two league titles with Arsenal two FA Cups with Arsenal and two league cups with Arsenal PFA team of the year three different times so David O'Leary one of the great Irish defenders always overlooked including often by me but, I mean, if we're picking an all-time Irish 11, he's he's in it. I think he's in it. I think you go back three, him, Lawrenson, and, and McGrath. I think that's what you'd have to do. Feels Can I ask though. a question on David O'Leary, Dave? You can, of course. What happened to him as a manager? Because he did well at Leeds, then disappeared. Yes, yeah, so he did really well at Leeds. Um Got them into the Champions League, got to the Champions League semi-final, I want to say. Um, and then he joined Aston Villa. And it, for whatever reason, it just, it didn't work. He had them struggling in the bottom half of the league by the time he got sacked. But he was there, what, two, three seasons? He was there three seasons. And for whatever reason, it just never quite worked out for him. They finished sixth in the first season. They'd started badly and kind of surged back. 
The second season, they were very, very average and finished in mid-table. And then the last season, they were just garbage. And they were very fortunate to stay up. I think he had maybe a year left on his contract. And they just, they binned him off and got Martin O'Neill in. Um, Then he was out of management for years. And I I didn't understand why. There was a four-year gap where he just didn't, didn't even get linked with a job. And then he rocked up in Abu Dhabi. Or in, no, not Abu Dhabi. Was it Dubai? Um, And he was there for a year, less than a year. Made a fortune off it. They when they sacked him, they had to pay him out his contract. But yeah, I I don't know. I don't know why it all went so wrong because certainly at Leeds he looked like someone that was destined for a long career as a manager. Had to overcome a lot of big hurdles. Obviously, there was he was in charge when those two Leeds fans were were murdered. There was so that was a, a huge thing for the Leeds fan base and the Leeds club. Um, he was in charge when Woodgate and, and Lee Bowyer got themselves in that trouble in the city centre and ended up going to court over it. <sighs> Apparently, so I'm just reading here, O'Leary to some extent alienated the fans and Peter Ridsdale by writing a book, Leeds United, on trial. Um, I, I don't think I've read that book. I don't think I was aware of that book. So I, I must get hold of that and have a look. But... He did spend a lot of money. He bought mostly good players, but some crap ones as well. But I, I think I think he was tarnished by what happened to Leeds afterwards. Um, I think he got a lot of blame for what Peter Ridsdale did. I don't think he was fully aware of the fact that Ridsdale was mortgaging the club the way the way he was. I, I don't think he was uh, aware that Ridsdale had borrowed sixty million against future gate receipts, which were budgeting for being in the Champions League every year. And as soon as they weren't, it all fell apart. Uh, victim of circumstances, maybe. Like, it's it's just disappointing. He's only, what age is he now? He's 64. He's unlikely to get another shot at it. So, yeah, I, I don't know is the honest answer. I, I don't know why it went wrong the way it did, but he was, he was a hell of a player. Uh, I've got Ron Chopper-Harris as my other centre-back, the most appearances for Chelsea Football Club, uh, 795 appearances between 1961 and 1980, uh, finished his career at Brentford, had four years there. Maybe the best player to never play for England. I think that's Probably a fair assertion. Small guy, 5'8", absolutely tough as nails. You could play him anywhere. Centre-back, full-back, holding midfield. Just one of the proper hard men of English football. Um, Won the Cup Winners' Cup and two FA Cups. Sorry, won the Cup Winners' Cup and FA Cup and a League Cup with Chelsea. Um... for me, I, I, someone that's very underappreciated. Uh, in midfield, I've got Ian Callaghan, Liverpool's, or Callaghan. Is it Callaghan or Callaghan? Because it's Callaghan where I'm from, but I, I've heard people say it's Callaghan. And I've never fully copped on to what it actually is. I'm going to say Callaghan because I'm Irish and that's how we say it. 
Uh, Ian Callaghan. Liverpool's most appearances. An absolute machine who played 857 times for the Reds. Every season between 62-63 and 77-78. All bar one, he was over 43 games. Sorry, over 41 games. In one season, we played uh, 34 games. Never below that. 55, 53, 50, 58, 51, 53, 34, 52, 66, 61, 51, 57, 48. That's a hell of a run. And the season that preceded that entire run, he had 47 appearances. So he's over 47 appearances in every year bar one from 63, 64 to the end of 1977. That's a hell of a run. A hell of a run. Five league titles, two FA Cups, two European Cups, two UEFA Cups. He's one of Liverpool's all-time greats and and a World Cup winner in 1966 with England. Only played four times for England, massively undercapped. But what a career. This one, I've got Michael Zork then as my kind of as as one of my midfielders, uh, most appearances for Dortmund, um, five hundred and seventy two games across seventeen years. Obviously, more known as their sporting director for a long, long time, but was was there and part of that great squad that won two Bundesliga titles and the Champions League in the mid nineties. Though at that point, he'd become more of a squad player. Um. Ryan Giggs, I'm putting him in because he's Manchester United's most appearances and I'm moving straight past it. To my front three, I've got Lionel Messi, most goals and most appearances for Barcelona. There's there's no real reason to talk about Lionel Messi. I've got Francesco Totti, most goals and most appearances for AS Roma. There's no real reason to talk about him. And because Real Madrid needs some representatives, I've gone for... Raul, most appearances for Real Madrid. Uh, second most goals, but most appearances for Real Madrid. So Buffon, Zanetti, O'Leary, Harris, Maldini, Callahan, Zork, Giggs, Messi, Totti, Raul. Happy with that, personally. Um, let me see. Question from Guy Drinkle. Oh, there's a, sorry, I missed this. When I was talking about Spurs, Guy threw into the chat, could they look to bring back Noni Mudeki? I, I think that would be a very clever decision. Now, that's what you could... If, if you've decided that Brian Hill isn't for you, you could look to move him on and bring back Noni. I, I think I'd probably do that. I think I'd probably do that. If you could bring back Marcus Edwards and Noni while selling off Hill and Lucas Mora and, say, Harry Winks to cover a lot of the fee. Yeah, I think that would be very, very clever for Spurs. I think those players would just care a bit more as well. Um, So a question from Guy Drinkle. What would Messi have to do for you to overtake Maradona as the best of all time? He can't at this point. He can't. Because we've seen the best of Messi. Now, if he wins the World Cup, it just adds to his 
stake and claim as the greatest of all time. But nothing will change my view on Maradona being a better player than Messi. Because unless Messi is somehow going to wind the clock back 10 years and play the way he did, but 5% better? No, it's it's not going to happen. It's the same. Like A lot of people will say Messi's the best ever, and that's fine. I'm not going to disagree with you. Well, I do disagree with you. I'm not going to argue with you over it. But I always think there's got to be a distinction between the best and the greatest, because the best is the individual action. The greatest, I for me, is more about longevity and sustained brilliance. Like, I've said this before, for Liverpool, Luis Suarez is the best player Liverpool have ever had. But Kenny Dalglish is Liverpool's greatest ever player. Or you can argue it's it's Barnes, you can argue it's Gerrard. I'll say it's Dalglish. Cristiano is the best player Manchester United have, but Bobby Charlton is United's greatest ever player. He just is. Now, there's some clubs where the best and the greatest are the same. Arsenal, it's Thierry Henry. But I think for Chelsea, they would probably argue that Frank Lampard is their greatest ever player, whereas Gianfranco Zola is the best player they ever had. Or you could argue it's Eden Hazard. I would say it's Gianfranco Zola. You know? City, the same. I mean, Kevin De Bruyne is... Kevin De Bruyne might be both now because of he's been there quite a while. But for a long time, Francis Lee was the greatest player City had. Even when they were spending all this money, De Bruyne has probably... Yeah, he's probably beaten them to that now, in fairness. So, yeah, maybe it's the KDB. But I do just think there's a distinction to be made. Like, again, Alfredo Stefano is the greatest player Real Madrid ever had. Sorry, is, is I, well, actually, is he, the, he could be the best as well. The Stefano might be the best and greatest that Real ever had. But Cristiano certainly deserves warrant in terms of best because of what he did for so long there. Greater than the Stefano, not for me. So uh, in that regard, it works the opposite way. Whereas Cristiano was probably better at his peak than than the Stefano. I would say the Stefano was a greater player for Real, to be clear. Yeah, anyway. Um, the last questions I've got are from Alex. Um, I have them open. There we go. Which confederation between North America, Asia, and Africa do you believe are closest to winning a World Cup? If your answer is North America because of the USA, who would you choose excluding them? Um, I I would say it's probably Africa. I think I think America could the USA I think could win a World Cup in my lifetime because the the talent pool is just so so strong and they're going in the right direction but it is they do sort of do two steps forward one step back two steps forward one step back so they're always kind of letting themselves down but I, I don't see Canada winning a World Cup I don't think Mexico will win a World Cup but in Africa 
I think there's there's some real emerging nations. I think Ghana with the talent level. I think the, the diaspora of all these countries as well will start to flood home in terms of the footballing talent. So Nigeria might get more of their um more players who have you know Nigerian parents and grandparents might come back to them as opposed to declaring to play for England or whatever. Uh, same with Ghana. So Nigeria, Ghana, Senegal, Morocco. I, I think Africa is probably closer. Largely because there's obviously more countries. But also because they're they're more committed. Like, I could be wrong. I don't know what are the sports they play in Ghana and Nigeria but I'm guessing football is the number one sport in both countries. Whereas in America, you've got American football, you've got baseball, you've got basketball. At best, it's fourth. I assume it's a bigger draw to kids than ice hockey. Because like you're not playing ice hockey a whole bunch if you grow up in Texas, I don't think. Maybe you do, I could be wrong, but don't think you do. I know they'll have hockey rinks, but if you live in Minnesota... You can go to a hockey rink or you can just go out in the lake for four months of the year. Um, So I'd say football's probably overtaken hockey in terms of popularity, but still fourth, whereas it's number one for the other countries. So I would say it's Africa. I think Asia are the furthest away. Yeah. What are some underrated, over or overrated World Cup goals? Oh, um... Jesus, that's... Let me think. Do you know what goal I've always felt is just a little bit overrated? Is the Carlos Alberto goal for Brazil against Italy. I've always felt it's just a little bit overrated. I think Benjamin Pavard's is a little bit overrated as well. It was a great goal. It's a great goal. But I think it's a little bit overrated. Uh, Maradona's is the clear number one. It's the best goal the World Cup has ever seen. I'm looking at a list that has James Rodriguez's volley for Colombia against Uruguay, number two. And I, I it was Micah Richards and Alan Shearer. And I, I do agree. I, I think it's... The technique is just outrageous. The Burkamp goal against Argentina is is underrated, without doubt. I think the Owen goal is is overrated because it was Michael Owen and he was only a, a kid. But I just think he caught they caught Argentina in transition. It's a great goal, but I think it's slightly overrated. Um, Because this goal is not on this list, I'm going to call it underrated. Maxi Rodriguez, for me, scored one of the great World Cup goals against... Mexico in 06. 
He's playing on the right, crossfield ball from the left. He takes on his chest at the corner of the penalty area inside the defender and hits a left-footed volley and it just arrows into the top corner. The technique is otherworldly. It is a sensational goal. And what makes it even more sensational is Maxi Rodriguez is right-footed. That's a weak-foot goal. That is, it's obscene. Absolutely obscene. I think that is hugely, hugely underrated as a World Cup goal. And outrageous that it's not included in uh, this list for me. Giovanni van Bronckhorst, Netherlands versus Uruguay. That's a really good one as well. Um, That ball might still be travelling if the net hadn't been there. I'll give you I'll give you Maxi Rodriguez Burkamp and even though everybody thinks it's the best goal ever, I still think the Maradona goal is underrated. I don't think people understand just how good that goal is. If you ever listen to Gary Lineker talk about that game, he mentions that the pitch had just been relayed, but it wasn't relayed in rolls of turf, it was relayed in squares of turf. And when you put your foot down and went to run and press off, the turf would slip underneath your foot. And he carries the ball from his own half, beating everybody, everybody, to do that. Sensational. Uh, Overrated. Like I said, I think the Pavard one's just a little bit overrated. I think the Carlos Alberto, it's a, these are all great goals. I think the Carlos Alberto one's just a little bit over. Pele's parting is what's mostly overrated for me. Oh, guy's got a good shout. Van Persie's header. Van Persie's header is unquestionably an underrated World Cup goal because it's ludicrous. Now, I know it was a Puskas finalist award, uh, Puskas award finalist, but Nobody, nobody should have been heading a ball from there. And he does, and it's ludicrous. Yeah, so that's uh, Netherlands, Spain, 2014. Absolutely. Yeah, the Burkham one as well, though. Jesus, that touch. The first touch, that ball from De Boer is unbelievable. The first touch is ludicrous. Um, one mentioned here, um, Al Auron, a name butchered, unfortunately, Saudi Arabia versus Belgium in 94, picks the ball up in his own half and just starts running. Now, the biggest thing about this goal is the fact that it's Saudi Arabia against Belgium. Belgium were good, not great. But Saudi Arabia were expected to get their asses handed to them in every game, and and they didn't, and he scores an all-time great goal. Um, Alex mentions that Tim Cahill goal against the Netherlands. Yeah, that's a a pretty good one. We'll We'll finish with the gossip. Manchester United are set to make an inquiry about the availability of Benfica's Portugal striker, Goncalo Ramos. Has although Eric Ten Hag has been told it's not certain a striker will arrive, I, I have to laugh at Eric Ten Hag. Fella spent two hundred million in the summer 
and has been crying about not having enough money to spend. Chelsea are not looking to bring in a, to bring forward their plans to sign Christopher Nkunku. It's the spoofer with the catchphrase. He's writing for caught offside. I mean, he's down bad at the moment. If anyone... Look, when people look at him and look at the outlets he quote-unquote works for, and I use work in the most... Work is really doing a lot of heavy lifting here. He's not really working. He's grifting. When he's grifting and he's doing it for the likes of caught offside and not a real reputable big-time outlet, you know that he's just not seen the same way inside the industry as he is on Twitter. And he's been called out now multiple times by real journalists. But as a reason Ornstein works for The Athletic and this clown works for Caught Offside, if he was anything close to what he pretends to be and what people think he is, ESPN will be paying him all the money. Because ESPN, ESPN are in the news-breaking business. That's why they pay Adrian Wojnarowski millions and millions of pounds a year. It's why they pay Adam Schefter millions and millions and millions of pounds a year. And I'm trying to think what the baseball one is. Is it is it Jeff Passam? Is that his name? I think Jeff Passam's the insider, the, like the big insider guy. Um for for baseball he's the one that's broken a lot of the big stories so yeah those are buster Olney's another one he's another one that breaks a lot of news but jeff passan is kind of the main guy him Schefter, and morgenowski they they pay them fortunes adrian morgenowski salary adam Schefter, five-year 45 million Dollar contract, Wojnarowski five year, thirty five million dollar contract. So they're paying nine million a year to Schefter and seven million a year to Wojnarowski. Like consider that. Consider they're journalists. Like they pay fortunes to Stephen A. Smith, but he's a presenter type of thing, a pundit type of guy. He's a clown but he's you know he's somewhat entertaining they pay big money to the likes of michael wilbon and tony kornheiser they used to pay bill simmons big money they used to pay uh colin cowherd big money they pay scott van pelt big money but they don't pay them what they pay these guys and these guys just break news if romano was anything like what he makes out that he is he'd be working for espn and he'd be earning a fortune but unfortunately, ESPN don't run stuff that you've nicked off other journalists and they don't run guesswork. So you're, uh, you're shit out of luck, Mr. Romano. Um, there is a very real possibility that Dusan Vlahovic will leave Juventus in 2023. So this is from Ben Jacobs, who is a spoofer. So we'll put that in the bin as well. Chelsea faced competition from Manchester United and Liverpool. For Borussia Dortmund's Yusofa Makoko, but interested clubs will have to convince the German striker that he will not sit on the bench. Well, he's not going to go to any of those clubs if that's what he's if he's looking to be a first team starter. Borussia Dortmund hope Makoko's relationship with head coach Eden Terzic will help convince the forward to stay at the club. I think he will stay, and he's spoken about how he wants to stay, so I think he will. 
Real Madrid are interested in signing Cody Gakbo to succeed Kareem Benzema. No, they're not. Don't be ridiculous. Uh, England manager Gareth Southgate is expected to hold talks with the Football Association in early 2023, and he will be asked to make a quick decision. Well, if he's allowed to wait until 2023, he's not making a quick decision, is he? Leicester could be willing to pay as much as 45 million euros to sign Asadine Onahi. What? Don't be ridiculous. He's had a great World Cup. Nobody's paying 45 million euros for him. If that's the price, people just wait till the summer and they'll get him for about 20, which is what he's worth. He's a big talent, though. Uh, Morocco forward, so- Morocco, sorry, Morocco midfielder Sofian Amrabat says he is proud to have been linked with the with a number of high-profile teams uh, following his performance at the World Cup. Jeff Felix has been offered the Premier League clubs. He seeks to leave Atletico Madrid in January. Manchester United and Arsenal seem the most likely options for Felix, with Atletico willing to listen to offers for more than over 100 million. Uh, Eric Ten Hag has been promised more funds, yada yada. Manchester United are working on a deal to sign Denzel Dumfries, which could open the door for Diogo Delot to leave. I'd rather have Delot or Delot or whatever, whatever his name is. Uh, Manchester United are looking at a number of right backs, but a move for any of them would be dependent on Aaron Wan-Bissaka leaving the club. Liverpool target Enzo Fernandez will not be leaving Benfica unless an interested party meets the release clause of 103 million. It's from 19minute.com, so we'll put that in the old bin. Fulham want to sign Cedric Soares. I would have really doubted he's awful. Uh, Arsenal will attempt to sign Yuri Tielemans in January. It looks like Leicester are going to be stubborn and hang on to him. Uh, Brazilian defender Lezao has arrived in England for his medical and will sign for West Ham. Fair play. Ajax have agreed to let Daly Blind leave in a free transfer in January. He'll get a decent move. English winger Samuel Illing Jr. has agreed to a new four-year contract extension with Juventus. That's a good sign. He's a talented player. Barcelona are interested in Alan Varela of Boca Juniors, but Ajax and Benfica have also been in talks. Benfica is the move for you, kid. Go to Benfica. Follow, follow Enzo's path. Uh, Bayern Munich are in negotiations for the early return of Alexander Nubel from his loan spell at Monaco. Makes sense. And at 26, he needs they need to see what he can do. Jefferson Lerma has rejected multiple new contract offers at Bournemouth, so he could leave on a free in the summer. Well, that is that. That is our show for today. Thank you, as always, for listening, folks. And I will see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.